Welcome to Winfluence John's Competition Corner Podcast, designed for businesses operating in the U.S. and elsewhere to better understand hot topics in antitrust law. I'm your host, Molly Donovan. I'm really excited about today's episode with David Greenspan. Dave is a partner at Winston & Strawn's New York office, where he focuses on antitrust, sports, and commercial litigation. I'm talking with Dave today about the overlap of antitrust law and sports, which I think will be fun for many of our listeners. Dave, thank you for joining us. Molly, thanks for having me in my remote, solitary working environment. It is even nicer than usual to get a chance to connect with you. You too. Um, I think probably, Dave, most sports fans do not spend time thinking about the impact that antitrust law has had on the industry, but it seems to me that antitrust law has had a major impact. So I agree with you on both points that sports fans probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about antitrust and that you're absolutely correct um, that antitrust cases have, have profoundly shaped the business of sports. Um, for a long time, American courts thought of sports, even pro sports, as mere exhibitions rather than commerce that was subject to the Sherman Act. Over time, as the revenues in the various professional and so-called amateur um, sports leagues have grown into the billions of dollars, even the most unenlightened courts of the old days have, have come to realize that sports leagues are every bit the commercial enterprises um, that is every other business that's subject to antitrust law. An example, and really the worst example, of uh, the court's, you know, original approach to antitrust and, and sports um, was the Supreme Court's unanimous conclusion in one of the worst antitrust decisions ever rendered in the 1920s that professional baseball was not subject to the Sherman Act. Um, this judicially granted antitrust exemption has been chipped away at over the years, but primarily through congressional action, specifically the Curt Flood Act, which gave uh, Major League Baseball players um, antitrust rights. But, but that judicially created antitrust exemption from the 1920s still exempts much of Major League Baseball's activity um, today. Um, college sports is another area where courts have issued some wrong-headed antitrust decisions, but there too, the cases are trending in the right direction to, to make sure that college athletes in particular um, are afforded antitrust rights just like any other worker. Okay, well, backing up for a second, let's go back to professional leagues. What are they, if you can, can you outline sort of the key areas in which antitrust issues come up in the context of professional sports? Yeah, they, they come up in a variety and, frankly, a, a lot of ways. Um, but, but to try to group them, number one, there are occasions when professional sports owners sue one another under the antitrust laws. Um, and if someone who litigates players' rights against owners, these owner-v-owner -owner suits are not only of great interest, they're also great fun uh, for us player advocates to, to watch from the sidelines. Um, a second bucket of sports industry antitrust cases um, are, are claims brought by consumers um, against leagues and leagues' broadcast partners 
over restrictions um, that they impose. Uh, but I would say the third category, and probably the, the category of sports antitrust litigation that has really most fundamentally served to shape a professional sports look like, are those suits that revolve around leagues and teams' effort to limit competition for player services. Um, and I'll note, and, and we can talk about it some more, that these cases not only implicate antitrust law, but labor law can come into play too because the major professional um, players associations in the U.S. are all unionized, and so that creates sort of another dimension of these antitrust disputes, which is that labor law will, will oftentimes have a role to play. Let's start with your first bucket, um, owners suing each other. Um, do you have some examples of that? Yes. This has come up maybe most frequently and I think most prominently um, in franchise relocation disputes. Um, so, for example, in 1980, the Oakland Raiders announced that they intended to move from Oakland to Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Rams were already located in Los Angeles, and at the time, the NFL's rules required three-fourths of owner's approval to permit a team to relocate into the territory of another team. The Raiders couldn't get that approval um, from the league's ownership, and litigation ensued. The Raiders and the stadium that wanted the Raiders as its tenant claimed that the NFL's restrictions on relocation violated the Sherman Act. Um, ultimately, the league's relocation rule was declared illegal by a jury and upheld by the Ninth Circuit, and the Raiders moved to, to Los Angeles. Notably, 12 years later, they moved back to Oakland, and now the Raiders are on their way to Las Vegas, which, of course, has resulted in yet another antitrust suit. Um, sort of a, a similar scenario played out um, in California in the NBA, when in the 80s, when the then San Diego Clippers wanted to move to L.A. without league approval, uh, the league and Clippers filed dueling lawsuits. Again, the, the Clippers asserted, much like the Raiders had, that the restrictions on their relocation violated antitrust law. Um, and eventually, though, in, in that scenario, the, the lawsuits were dropped after the league permitted um, the, the Clippers' move. Uh, sort of another prominent example of antitrust litigation among owners um, involved the IP rights of the Dallas Cowboys in the mid-1990s. Um, the NFL teams had jointly agreed um, that they were going to assign their respective IP, so, you know, the, the logos and the colors and marks of the different teams, um, to a joint licensing arm of the league. The idea, the belief among the owners, was that a collective um, licensor of their combined intellectual property would be more valuable than each team selling its IP on its own. But the Cowboys, uh, in a nutshell, believed that their IP was more valuable than all the other owners, and they didn't want to dilute the value of their intellectual property by going along with this joint plan. Um, the league sued the Cowboys for not participating, and the Cowboys countersued that the bundling of team IP rights violated antitrust law. Uh, the league, I think unsurprisingly, 
quickly settled uh, that antitrust suit. And to this day, the Cowboys um, license their intellectual property separate and apart from every other NFL franchise. Um, to give one more example of owner-on-owner uh, -owner warfare, in 2007, the Rangers, uh, the NHL's New York Rangers, sued the NHL over a requirement that the Rangers migrate their website to a common platform that would be managed by the league. In other words, the league wanted to manage all of its teams' um, websites. And sort of similar to the Cowboys' uh, belief and litigation strategy in the intellectual property licensing dispute, the Rangers believed that if they were forced to migrate their website um, to something controlled by the leagues, it would di dilute its value, it would limit the Rangers' ability to profit off of advertising, um, et cetera. Uh, the Rangers filed a preliminary injunction, moved for a preliminary injunction um, against the league uh, to enable it to not migrate its website, um, and they lost. The crux of the ruling was that the Rangers had failed to show that there was an actual adverse impact on competition as opposed to on the Rangers uh, itself. And the Rangers had also fared to show at the preliminary injunction stage that the NHL's um, pro-competitive justification for a common web website platform could be achieved through a, a less restrictive um, means. So after the Second Circuit then unanimously upheld the denial of the Rangers' request for a preliminary injunction, the team dropped the lawsuit. Okay. Um, moving now to your second bucket, um, I think you said this one was consumers suing leagues over broadcasting. Um, can you talk about that one a little bit more? Sure. Consumer suits against leagues, they, they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, the past few years, there have been some ticket sales and secondary market-related um, antitrust cases um, by, by leagues, sorry, by consumers against leagues. Um, but, but in terms of the broadcast-related suits, there have been a, a couple of, of really important and consequential cases um, in recent years, and they focused on restrictions that leagues put on selling out-of-market broadcasts. So in the Lawman v. NHL case, a group of consumers sued the National Hockey League and its broadcast partners, which were DirecTV and Comcast, alleging that those defendants had conspired to require consumers to buy bundled out-of-market games that they didn't want. Their choice was to buy games that they didn't want or not to be able to buy out-of-market games at all. So, for example, if you lived in Los Angeles but wanted to watch a Philadelphia Flyers game, you would have to buy the NHL's full league package or you couldn't watch those out-of-market games at all. Um, a similar lawsuit was filed against Major League Baseball. Um, the plaintiffs got as far as successfully certifying their classes, at which point um, the cases settled. Uh, another example of a consumer lawsuit um, came up in the context of apparel, which is a case called Dang v. San Francisco 49ers, where a class of consumers alleged that the NFL's um, agreement with Reebok to give it the exclusive right to make and sell NFL apparel 
violated antitrust law and ultimately caused the consumers to pay more for NFL licensed apparel than they otherwise would have. Um, the NFL lost a motion to dismiss, and the parties in that case settled relatively early, even before uh, the case got to class certification. So that's, you know, as, as you can see, these consumer cases, um, you know, come in, in different shapes and, and sizes, but, but those are some of the most, um, I think, impactful one of the last few years. Yeah, thanks. Um, I want to turn now to your third bucket. To me, this one is the most interesting. It's um, challenges to owners' attempts to restrict competition um, among themselves for the services of, of players, you said. Um, and and the, my first question is, can you talk a little bit more about the overlap you mentioned between the antitrust issues in this bucket and labor law? Yeah, so in an open market, teams would be able to pay players whatever they want, whatever the free market dictates. Players, on the other hand, they'd be able to sign deals for as long as they liked, as short as they liked. They could move between teams once their contracts expired. There'd be no draft. And Molly, if you think about it, if you're the best player in college basketball, your quote-unquote reward for being the first overall draft pick is that the worst team in the NBA the year before has the exclusive rights to you, whether or yeah. not you like the, whether or not you like the coach, whether or not you like the city, whether or not you like the the weather, you can't work for anyone else in the NBA. Um, owners don't like freedom of player movement and free market competition for compensation. They want to control and set restrictions among themselves. Um, and if they weren't able to obtain an antitrust exemption. Things like a salary cap and a draft and restrictions on player mo movement would violate the antitrust laws. Or arguably, they'd be per se violations of, of the antitrust laws. Yeah, absolutely. Laws. Right. But, but there's the player side of the equation, too. Just like the owners, they have an interest in being able to, in some capacities, work together um, and band together to improve their working you know, conditions and protections and benefits, you know, and to collectively negotiate um, for higher salaries and for greater freedom of movement. Um, and so to accomplish those goals, the major uh, players' leagues, the players in those leagues have formed unions, um, and the unions are the counterpart to the leagues which have their own collective bargaining representative. And, and all of this creates attention um, because antitrust law, on the one hand, prohibits coordination mm -hmm. among competitors, whereas labor law, on the other, encourages collective bargaining. So what courts have done to balance these competing considerations of antitrust and labor law is created certain – Congress created one exemption to, to antitrust law um, in unionized industries – and the courts created another one, and, and, and the exemption that the courts created, it's called a non-statutory labor exemption, and it serves to protect um, many collectively bargained restraints on competition from antitrust scrutiny. So as a result, when a league and a union agree that the league can impose a draft and a salary cap and the other restrictions we've been talking about, so long as the collective bargaining relationship remains in place, a plaintiff who wants to challenge those rules 
has to first prove that the non-statutory labor exemption doesn't protect the league and the union's agreement um, before a court can even consider the merits of the underlying antitrust claim. The converse of that is when the collective bargaining relationship um, between a union and a league ends, or when a collective bargaining agreement expires, um, players may, and in the past they have, decided that the benefits of being a union and of having labor law rights um, become less beneficial than reclaiming their antitrust rights. And so players have, like I said in the past, ha have exercised their right to cease functioning as a union in order to reclaim their antitrust rights. This happened um, very prominently in 2011. The NFL Players disclaimed the NFL Players Association as their union. The Players Association gave up its status as the player's collective bargaining representative under labor law, and it converted into a trade association. The, the trade-off is the players and the union lost their labor law rights, but they reclaimed the ability to sue the league under antitrust laws, which they did. At the time, the NFL had imposed a, a, a so-called lockout of players, which meant it shut down the entire league. And by the players disclaiming the NFLPA as their labor union, they regained the ability to sue the NFL, which we did. Um, the, the, what the NFL called a lockout, we called a per se illegal group boycott. Um, and that antitrust litigation ultimately um, led to, uh, it created important leverage for the players, and it led to a resumption of football and a resumption of eventually, um, you know, the, the, the working relationship between the, the players, you know, and the union. So, so as you can see, you know, the, the toggling of antitrust and, and, and labor law, um, you know, is very important you know, part of the dynamic of um, the state of the law in, in these industries. Yeah, and this is not an issue just for football players in the NFL, right? No, in, in 2011, a, a very similar uh, pattern played out with the NBA, um, where the, the league imposed a lockout. The players decided that they wanted to challenge um, – that lockout under the antitrust law rather than um, through the NLRB or through, um, you know, other labor challenges. So, so much like the NFL players, the NBA players reclaimed their antitrust rights and brought an antitrust suit, um, and eventually the, uh, the lockout was, was ended and the players got back to work. And, and these cases were all brought under Section 1 of the, of the Sherman Act? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, you know, under Section 1, you know, sort of the, the threshold question is, you know, are, are there separate economic actors that have entered into an agreement um, the, in the context of sports, the issue of whether the, the different teams, the different entities are separate economic actors um, is important because, as you know, under Section 1, under the Copperweld case, um, you know, a, a monolithic economic entity can't conspire with itself. Um, the leagues for years 
have failed in trying to argue that their teams should be viewed as such a monolithic economic entity as opposed to what they really are, which is teams that compete quite vigorously against one, one another for the best coaches, for the best players, for fans, um, for eyeballs, for merchandise, that they are, yes, they, they collaborate in terms of, of the rules of the game, but, but the reality is um, these are horizontal competitors um, leading up to the lockout that the NFL imposed in 2011, uh, the NFL made a gambit before the Supreme Court in a case called American Needle to try to have the court declare the NFL um, teams to be a single economic entity and therefore immune from scrutiny under the antitrust law. And that was um, unanimously rejected uh, and correctly rejected by, by the Supreme Court, which, you know, confirmed that the NFL's teams were just as vulnerable to antitrust scrutiny when they enter into rules with one another, when they enter into restrictions with one another, just like any other businesses that compete. Right, right. Um, we're running low on time, so I want to be sure to get to college athletics because I know, Dave, that you've done a lot of work on behalf of college athletes against the restrictions of the NCAA. Um, please tell us about your work in that area and the key issues that are at stake. Well, the, the NCAA, despite claiming to protect the interests of college athletes, actually restricts them in every way um, imaginable. Uh, I mean, to give one example, um, the NCAA restricts a college athlete's ability to move from one university to another. Uh, if the athlete wants to switch schools for whatever reason, um, he or she can be prohibited for playing uh, college sports when they move on to the next school for a period of time. Um, so, so that's one one form of restriction that you know, for the life of me, I don't know how the NCAA um, it justifies in the name of doing what's right for college athletes. But probably, not probably, certainly the most um, you know prominent issue of the day in college sports is the extent to which college athletes um, should be permitted to be compensated, um, whether it's for the work, and that's what it is, the work that they perform um, for their schools, or for, for example, being able to exploit their name, image, and likeness rights. Um, there's a lot of money in college sports, and most of these college athletes will never have the opportunity to turn pro. And so as a matter of both, frankly, of just decency and fairness and antitrust law, um, you know, these college athletes ought to be given the opportunity uh, to compete and to have people compete, um, you know, to compensate them for all of the value that they, they can bring. Um, the NCAA has tried to justify uh, its so-called amateurism restrictions um, based on sort of a throwaway piece of dicta in a Supreme Court case from a gazillion years ago called Board of Regents in which the Supreme Court wrote that for the NCAA to maintain its particular brand of football, it must be given ample latitude to superintend college sports and that athletes 
must not um, be paid. Uh, what the NCAA always forgets about Board of Regents is that it's an antitrust case um, in which the NCAA was found guilty, in which, which it's, it's been many times. The NCAA is one of the great antitrust uh, recidivists we have in, in the industry of sports. Um, and in recent litigations in the Ninth Circuit, uh, one was the O'Bannon case, which challenged restrictions on college athletes' ability to exploit their name, image, and likeness rights. Another case was called the Austin case, which I, I litigated, um, which challenged the NCAA's restrictions on um, what schools are permitted to pay to college athletes in exchange for their services, the work that they perform for the team. The Ninth Circuit confirmed that the statement in Board of Regents is mere dicta, and that when the NCAA wants to attempt to justify its restraints in the name of amateurism, it has to prove that up as a matter of fact. Pro-competitive justifications have to be proven. They're not presumed. And um, that the NCAA has to abide by the Sherman Act just like any other business. Um, so, you know, Board of Regents has been put in its proper place uh, by the Ninth Circuit. And, and the last thing I would just mention, Molly, is that various states and now Congress um, are looking at ways, and some states, uh, Florida and California too, have already enacted legislation that will actually require schools um, to permit their athletes, to their college athletes, uh, to, to capitalize from their name, image, and likeness rights. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting. The NCAA is now lobbying Congress. Um, they, they sort of can't get out of their own way in terms of, you know, several years ago in the O'Bannon case, they violently opposed name, image, and likeness rights for college athletes. Now they go to Congress and purport to support those rights, yet at the same time they ask for an antitrust exemption. So there are a lot of balls in the air. It's very interesting to watch. And although in college sports sometimes it's two steps forward, one step backwards for the athletes, the overall trend has really been um, an important movement, you know, in the direction of greater competition and, and greater fairness. Yeah, um, I know you know these issues inside and out, and you, you've done a lot of important work this, uh, in this area. So I really want to thank you for taking the time um, to join me for today's podcast, um, which I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. And, and if any of them have follow-up questions um, or a more specific topic within the realm of antitrust and sports, maybe we could persuade Dave to come back um, for a follow-up episode in the future. Um, so thanks again, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Molly. Um, in 2020, it's very easy to find me. So you'll, you'll let me know if you need me back. I will. And so for everyone out there, my email address is mmdonovan at winston.com. And thanks, everyone, for listening.